This is the Behind the Line Podcast, coming to you from the wacky left coast capital of Seattle. News from the Pacific Northwest, the left coast, the U.S., and the world that matters. The stories the MSM won't talk about. Deciphering the truth through all the lies. For more, visit BehindTheLinePodcast.com. Well, was there any doubt that they would come to some kind of agreement for the debt ceiling? I mean, they've been gaslighting us for weeks, saying the U.S. is going to default on its debt. We're going to go bankrupt. We're going to ruin the world economy, yada, yada, yada. It's the same story every time this comes around. There's no way either side is going to let that happen. So Sunday, they released information on this agreement that they've supposedly come to, which is yet to be voted on, but you know they're going to, they're going to vote for it. So I'm going to go over what, uh, what this deal entails, and it's pretty outrageous. Under the deal, non-defense spending would remain relatively flat in fiscal 2024 and increase by 1% in 2025. After certain adjustments to appropriations were made, according to a White House official, after fiscal 2025, there would be no budget caps. The House GOP fact sheet says that non-defense discretionary spending would be rolled back to fiscal 2022 levels and top-line federal spending would be limited to 1% annual growth for the next six years. The breakdown of non-defense discretionary spending for fiscal 2024, according to a source familiar with the deal, is that the cap would be about $704 billion, of which $121 billion would be for veterans' medical care, and $583 billion would be for other areas. But the adjustments would bring the resources available for spending outside of veterans' medical care to $637 billion for the coming fiscal year, compared to $638 billion for the current one. Under the deal, $11 billion in rescinded, unobligated COVID-19 relief funds and $10 billion in money shifted from the Internal Revenue Service would be used to beef up non-defense discretionary spending. Also, $10 billion in funds repurposed for mandatory programs and $23 billion that's designated as emergency funding would be shifted. Some $886 billion would be spent on defense, according to the bill text. The deal would maintain full funding for veterans' health care and would increase support for the PACT Act's Toxic Exposure Fund by nearly $15 billion for fiscal 2024, according to a White House source. The House GOP fact sheet says veterans' medical care would be fully funded. <clears throat> the agreement calls for temporary broadening of work requirements for certain adults receiving food stamps. Currently, childless, able-bodied adults ages 18 to 49 are only able to get food stamps for three months out of every three years unless they are employed at least 20 hours a week or meet other criteria. The agreement would increase the upper limit of the mandate to age 55 in phases. However, the deal would also expand exemptions for veterans, people who are homeless, and former foster youth in this Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, as food stamps are formerly known. And all the changes would end in 2030. The administration believes that about the same number of food stamp recipients would be subject to work requirements because of the exemptions, though it is waiting for a formal estimate, the White House official said. 
The agreement would also tighten the current work requirements in the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, primarily by adjusting the work participation rate credits that states can receive for reducing their caseloads. Work requirements would not be introduced in Medicaid, which House Republicans had called for in their debt ceiling bill. The deal would rescind roughly $28 billion in unobligated funds from the COVID-19 relief packages that Congress passed to respond to the pandemic, according to the GOP. It would retain $5 billion in funding to accelerate the development of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. And funding for vaccines and treatments for the uninsured, according to a White House source. It would also keep money for housing assistance, the Indian Health Service, and other measures. Congress approved roughly $4.6 trillion in COVID-19 relief funds since the pandemic began in early 2020. <clears throat> House Republicans have been determined to jettison the roughly $80 billion in IRS funding over 10 years contained in the Inflation Reduction Act that Democrats passed last year. The GOP argue that the money will be used to hire an army of new agents to audit Americans, but the agency says it will also be used to support operations, modernize customer service technology, and assist taxpayers. The deal would repurpose $10 billion from fiscal 2024 and another $10 billion from fiscal 2025 appropriations to be used in non-defense areas, according to the White House source. The provision does not appear in the text of the bill, but another source familiar with the deal said both sides have agreed to it. Separately, the agreement would also rescind $1.4 billion in IRS funding from the Act, which the GOP describes as the full amount of funds included in the agency's fiscal 2023 spending plan for non-taxpayer services. The move, moves mean that the IRS will use up the boost in funding and need to request additional money from Congress sooner than a decade, according to the White House official. Under the deal, borrowers would have to begin paying back their student loans at the end of the summer, as the Biden administration has already announced, according to a third source familiar with the debt ceiling talks. The pause has been in effect since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Also, the agreement would maintain Biden's plan to move up to $20,000 in debt relief for qualifying borrowers, the source said. The measure is currently before the Supreme Court, which is expected to rule on it in coming weeks. The deal would also continue Biden's income-driven repayment plan, according to the White House source. The House GOP last week passed a resolution seeking to block the forgiveness program as well as end the pandemic-related pause on federal student loan payments. The agreement would not make any changes to the Inflation Reduction Act's climate and clean energy provisions, according to the White House talking points. Republicans had sought to repeal the law's clean energy tax credits and subsidies. The agreement also includes measures in the National Environmental Policy Act aimed at boosting the coordination, predictability, and certainty associated with federal agency decision-making, according to White House source. It would designate a single lead agency charged with developing a single environmental review document and would also require agencies to complete environmental reviews in one year or two years at most for most environmentally complex projects. The agreement would also speed the creation of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a natural gas pipeline in West Virginia. And here's the big one, folks. The agreement would suspend the nation's $31.4 trillion debt limit through January 1st, 2025. This removes it as a potential issue in the 2024 presidential election.
So, no cap on spending until January 25, meaning the debt, the debt can grow not only beyond the ceiling, but to who knows where, right? They can just freely spend money without any checks and balances until 2025. And why are we taking this out of the issue for the presidential election? Why are we giving Biden a pass, Democrats a pass on this? What good does it do to have this natural gas pipeline when you've got all these blue cities banning natural gas use? Are we going to use natural gas to make electricity? Which we are going to need an abundance of because of all the people shifting from natural gas to electricity and all the electric cars that will hypothetically be on the road because gas cars are being banned all over the place. None of this wacky environmental crap that's in Biden's Build Back Better plan is being tossed out. The Republicans elected to keep all of it in there. When are they going to address the debt? The amount of government spending. What business can be run where you're 30 plus trillion dollars in debt and still be in business and not go bankrupt? This is uh, fantasy land. This is unbelievably stupid. An interesting article from Citizens News. The fight is on to hold the United States government responsible for colluding with social media companies to censor Americans' free speech rights online. Missouri versus Biden, which was filed on May 5th, 2022, has been taking quite a trip through the court system. It was amended three separate times most recently to add an amendment that transforms the case into a class action suit due to the sheer number of Americans impacted by the government's crimes. Uncover DC has been tracking the case, offering play-by-play -play details about what has been happening with the case over the past year. The plaintiffs, including the states of Missouri and Louisiana, pushed for expedited discovery to obtain a limited set of evidence and depositions from certain individuals. They argued that this evidence would allow them to make the case for a temporary injunction to stop the government from infringing on the First Amendment rights of plaintiffs and their citizens. The judge granted the motion for expedited discovery and depositions, prompting a fight between the government and the judge, in this case, Judge Terry Dowdy. In short, the defendants want to stop all discovery and certain plaintiffs from being deposed. In its argument against expedited discovery and depositions, the government tried to claim that forcing government workers to sit for lengthy depositions is inappropriate, especially the head of the CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, who was summoned. Fortunately for the plaintiffs, Judge Dowdy agreed, disagreed, forcing the CISA head, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, and other alleged co-conspirators to sit down and tell all about what they did to deprive Americans of their First Amendment rights. Saki, as you may recall, made threats to social media companies straight from the podium, which prompted her being deposed. She then left her White House position conveniently. 
Over and over again, the government has lost every single time. So far in Missouri versus Biden, it appears as though Americans may finally be winning, at least in the sense that we can now see what has really been going on behind closed doors. Tony Fauci at one point was also deposed. This prompted the government to try to seal all depositions and video, claiming that government employees were being threatened, though it could provide no such proof to back this claim. Meanwhile, it was revealed through the process that CISA has categorized people's thoughts as being part of government's infrastructure, meaning the government believes it owns whatever activity takes place in your head. Let me read that one more time. The CISA has categorized people's thoughts as being part of the government's infrastructure. This is the argument the government tried to use to justify its illegal invasion of people's online privacy and speech. Were it not for the expedited discovery and depositions, we would not know that the CISA has an entire designation for the public's thoughts that it calls cognitive infrastructure. The government has tried again and again to delay the inevitable by postponing the case, which the judge refused to do, by obfuscating the truth and by trying to ram through the so-called TikTok bill or the Restrict Act, which seems to be on the fast track precisely because of Missouri versus Biden. It is because they need Congress to approve their actions here. This lawsuit is going to make it so they can't function, writes Tracy Beans for Uncovered DC about the matter. The U.S. government wants to control everything you do, say, and think. If there's any question in your mind at all that we're living 1984, this should answer that question for you. The World Health Organization has released a disease outbreak of myocarditis around May 17th in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. What they found was 10 hospitalized neonates with a positive intravirus polymerase chain reaction PCR test were found to have myocarditis. Seven of the 10 cases had further subtyping. One patient was still hospitalized and one had died. Although intravirus infections are common in neonates and young infants, the reported increase in myocarditis with severe outcomes in neonates and infants associated with intravirus infection is unusual. Between June 2022 and April 2023, <clears throat> 10 neonates under 28 days of age presented with a picture consistent with myocarditis and a positive intravenous PCR. Seven cases were treated in intensive care and one case died before transfer to tertiary care. Cases presented with features of sepsis, myocarditis, or in cardiorespiratory arrest. The peak incident of cases was in November of 2022 with sporadic cases in other months. The reported increase in severe myocarditis in neonates and infants associated with intravirus infection is unusual in the tertiary hospital covering the South Wales region. Two other similar cases have been identified in the six years prior to June 22. So in the six years prior, 
to June 2022, only two cases. And then between June 2022 and 23, more than 10. Because another five cases have been identified over the same period in the southwest of England, which they don't have information on. And by now, I think we all know that myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle. The most common cause of myocarditis is viral infection, enteroviruses. But it can be also be caused by a bacterial infection, a reaction to a drug, or an autoimmune disease. I think it's no coincidence that these babies are being born with myocarditis when their parents have probably been vaccinated. Of course, this article from the WHO says nothing about the vaccine status of these parents, but I'm willing to bet that they're vaccinated and that vaccination caused complications for their unborn children or whatever the vaccine did to them got transferred to their children when they became pregnant. There's people still lining up to get boosters. There are states, countries, cities still pushing these vaccines when we know what kind of damage they're doing. When we know that the vaccinated were the majority of COVID illnesses and death. When are you people going to wake up? Well, with all these economic problems and the debt and the economy and the government's need to tax us, you know we're looking at some sort of FedNow coin or some sort of electronic currency that's coming down the pike. The government's been openly talking about it, wanting to start it at any time now. They're going to make it harder and harder for you to use your money or have cash or get cash out of the bank, cash that you earned, that you worked for. Well, a bank in England called NatWest is now demanding that customers explain why they're withdrawing their own cash. An alleged customer of NatWest Bank captured a photo of a sign plastered across the doorway entry to one of the bank's branches notifying customers that in order to withdraw their own cash, they must tell NatWest why they need it. Based out of London with a few locations in Southern California, big surprise, NatWest allegedly told its customers via signage that in order to keep them safe and secure, customers will now be asked questions about the purpose of their cash withdrawals. We may also ask for supporting documentation, such as an invoice, the sign further reads. This helps us validate the withdrawal is genuine and protect you against fraud and scams. The biggest fraud and scam of all is private central banking, of course, which has a stranglehold on the United Kingdom, just as it does in the United States. Nevertheless, this is the official story from NatWest as to why it has decided to start probing its customers' intentions before allowing them to access their own cash. 
The signage at NatWest also allegedly informs customers that in order to withdraw large cash amounts exceeding 2,000 pounds, a 24-hour notice must be sent to the bank so preparations can be made. You can pre-advise us of your transaction via our customer contact team or in a branch, the sign states. In some instances, we may choose to decline the cash withdrawal based on the information provided surrounding the transaction. This will be at the branch's own discretion. For more information, please review our TNCs. It can be found under Section 2.2. A graphic display of the sign has been circulated on social media as of late. You may have already seen it. It was independently verified on the NatWest website, which contains the same small print notice about the sudden change. In Canada, this type of thing has already been happening for quite some time now, including before COVID. At least four big banks there routinely ask their customers to explain why they are withdrawing cash in excess of a couple thousand dollars. Customers are free to tell them that this is none of their business, and banking customers need to know that they have the freedom to do this, as some probably fear that they have no choice but to answer any such line of questioning. Even if no bank is yet to deny a person's withdrawal for any reason, you can see that the groundwork is now being laid with NatWest in tow to normalize the probing of people's purchasing decisions. Of course, when we go to electronic, this will all be done electronically, behind the scenes. They have to approve your transactions. This is all in the documentation issued by the White House months ago about electronic currency that it'll be a three-party process, you, a middleman, and the government, and they will decide if your transaction is approved or not approved. So even though you work for it, it's not yours to do what you want with it. And that's the way they want it. They want to decide what you can spend money on. And if they don't like you or like what you say or think then you're not going to get your money. Thank you for listening to the Behind the Line podcast. If you like this broadcast, please like and share it. Please follow us on Facebook, Rumble, YouTube, Twitter, Truth Social, Telegram, Gab, Parler, and LinkedIn. You can find our podcast at BehindTheLinePodcast.com netnewsnetwork.net and on Anchor, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and anywhere podcasts can be found. Thank you for your support.